Hello, and welcome to Gilded Goss. That's my NPR voice. Nice. You like it? Yeah, I do. Save it for, like, really important information, like melatonin gummies. Are they gateway gummies? <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> melatonin gummies are a gateway gummy. <laughs> welcome back to Gilded Goss. And if you're new here, we're the podcast that gives you news of the weird from the Gilded Age. Whether it's tales of scandal, true crime, mysteries, the paranormal, we're here to talk about it. It's me, Diana Palmer. And me, Justin Palmer, your clown of cormorants. <laughs> cormorants are a type of bird. I was like, what's that? But it's an alliteration, so I thought it was good. Nice. You know I love literary devices. Yeah. Yeah, I do. That's a little bit of inside baseball. <laughs> Real quick, before we get into the story, we love doing this podcast, and we're having a lot of fun hanging out with you guys. It's so much fun just sitting around the fire and having a chat and just enjoying one another. And if you're enjoying our weekly nuggets of bizarre tales, please let us know. Throw us a like or comment. Follow and subscribe. Show us some love. Join Doll Party Nation. We're not sure if that's what we're calling our nation, <laughs> Yet, but maybe it's Doll Party Nation. Maybe it's something else. Tell your friends. Help us spread the word. All right, so here we go. The sources for today's episode are good old Wikipedia, the Literary Hub article Gilded Age Parties for Even Wilder Than You Can Imagine, written by Renee Rosen, uh, the Atlas Obscura article The Girl Who Jumped Out of a Pie and Into a Gilded Age Morality Tale, written by Renee Gattuso, and the rest of our sources will be listed in our show notes. Give me these parties. I want to be in them. Okay. It's the late 1800s in New York City, and it's mid-November. The leaves have all changed, and a kaleidoscope of ochre and red hues floats slowly down from the trees, cloaking the city in a fleeting coziness. The air is cool and crisp. It carries a faint aroma of sweetness and the whisper of winter soon to come. Winter's coming. <laughs> And it's time to party like it's 1899. We weren't listening to that before we recorded this. <laughs> we totally were. Invitations are being hand-delivered to the poshest members of the upper class, marking the beginning of the winter social season. I'm posh if and I have received all the invitations. <laughs> it is time to flaunt wealth, hunt for a husband, see and be seen while you adorn jewels, Furs and an air of indifference. I'm hunting husbands during the winter time because that's my favorite season. Yeah, that's when you find all your husbands, Justin. Yeah. The winter social season ran from mid-November to Lent, and those 12 weeks were jam-packed with balls, dinners, receptions, parties. Dances. Um, uh, voguing. <laughs> um, <laughs> the list goes so on and on. So much voguing. Yeah. While some gatherings were of the usual stuffy and boring sort, other parties delighted in the bazaar as a way to rescue the poor, filthy rich from the tedium of a mundane existence, Justin. My life is so terrible. I make so much more money than everyone else. Please rescue me. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about today, guys. Yes. Let's start with the grand dame of wild gatherings herself, Mrs. Marion Mamie Fish. Get it, Mamie. We'll talk a little bit, a bit about who she was, what she was about, and then get into her brand of entertainment. Can you tell me a little bit about who she was and what she was about? I can. Sweet. Thank you. 
Mamie entered the old money ranks in 1876 when she married her childhood sweetheart, Stuyvesant Fish, a banker and the son of former Secretary of State Hamilton Fish. That's sweet. I like that childhood sweetheart. Yeah. That means they liked each other. I hope that means they liked each other. (laughs) Rare for the time, I think. She was independent and intelligent, though um, uneducated. She could barely read or write. She learned how to drive, which was like pretty rare for the time. Right. And she was an unconventional philanthropist. Unconventional philanthropists give money to other rich people. (laughs) Right? Well, she donated to the Red Cross and to like random artists she would encounter. I, okay, so I was wrong. Yeah, there was a story where she just like rolled up to it like a, I don't know, an art school. And like there was a student who couldn't pay for classes and she was like, I'll pay for her classes. I like that. I like that a lot. She was also vocal about her opinions on society, declaring once that it was the duty of the rich to entertain and live lavishly in order to keep the cooks and the caterers and the household staff employed. Surely our life of debauchery is required so the (laughs) poor can live. Yes. (laughs) But it is worth noting that she spoke out against women's suffrage. Oh, man. Saying a good husband is the best right of any woman. I was like, I was really into Mamie for a minute, but um, I guess people aren't perfect. And she, uh, though she didn't dazzle with her beauty, she was known for her lavish parties and caustic wit. And she would often turn that sharp tongue on her party guests, greeting them with, make yourself at home. No one wishes you were there more than I do. Ha! You got to burn people as they walk in the door. Yeah, set expectations low. Right. Right. Get the party started. And on one occasion, it had gotten back to Alva Belmont that Mamie, (laughs) Mamie said Alva looked like a frog. And when uh, Alva confronted her, she simply said, not a frog, a toad, my pet, a toad. I have two pieces of commentary about this. One, toads, very different than frogs, dry, craggy, bumpy. Frogs are slick and wet. There's, yeah, yeah. They might be pretty or something. But also... Toads are lumpy. Yeah, toads are lumpy. Um, You said Alva Belmont? Yeah. Now, from previous episodes, because I consume this mm-hmm. much like our listeners do. Yeah. And I hang on your every word. Thanks. I, I remember an Alva name, and I think it was Alva Be- Vanderbilt. It is one of the same. Whoa! She divorced uh, her husband and married a Belmont. Get it, Alva. I don't know. Maybe we'll cover it at some point. We'll see. We'll see. It was upon the death of Mrs. Astor that a- Mamie Fish inherited the mantle of Society Queen. Though she kind of shared it. She kind of shared the honor with a few other people like Alva Belmont. Makes sense. I mean, for as hard as Alva Belmont seemed to fight for her place in high society. Yeah, she sure did. Dinner at Mamie's house wasn't simply a dinner. At the time, dinner parties consisted of eight to ten courses lasting hours and were like a boring slog. I like the idea of 8 to 10 courses. I don't like the idea of a boring dinner. I don't like 8 to 10 courses. But they're probably small. <laughs> no. It's like a cracker course. Uh, but Mamie's dinners would last just an hour. She would sometimes have her footmen stand behind guests with orders to scoop up plates the moment they were empty. It was said that guests had to hold the plates down with one hand while, like, shoveling food in their mouths with the other just to, like, finish their food. Excuse me, sir. The lady of the house says to remove your plate. Give me that plate. Give me the plate now, sir. <laughs> Guests were then ushered into a dimly lit ballroom to enjoy a vaudeville show. Hey, Justin. Yeah. 
Do you know anything about vaudeville shows? You know what? <laughs> I sure do. Oh. Um, so this show is heavily researched by Diana, not by me. This is my one contribution to the episode in terms of research. Vaudeville shows were variety shows, essentially, that came to popularity after the Civil War. They were very nude form of entertainment. They incorporated a lot of different kinds of entertainment. They traveled. They made it possible for the common man to consume shows, which was not typical. And they were also really inclusive. Essentially, any kind of performer could be part of a vaudeville show. Were they saucy? They could be saucy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, it would be things like sword swallowing or like skits or um, slapstick comedy or anything like that. A variety show. Kind of a variety show. Um, I do believe that they did also institute some amount of decorum, though, because previously shows like that would encourage uh, the watchers to throw fruit and things. Um, you were not expected to do that at vaudeville show. Okay. And that was my bit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, Mrs. Astor had her Warren McAllister and Mamie had Mr. Harry Lear. He was a fellow socialite. And he was M- Mamie's partner in crime, and he shared her flair for the ridiculous. He was funny. He was loud. And he would even show up to parties and drag. Heck yeah, man. My kind of guy. Sounds like a like a dope dude. Mamie had an offbeat sense of humor. So did Harry. And the two were constantly cooking up crazy schemes. And now on to the parties. It's a reason for this season. I like parties. I like partying. And so I'm excited about this. Yes. Now, in season one of HBO's The Gilded Age, there was a doll party that was depicted. It's a real fancy affair. Dolls everywhere. People sitting, enjoying tea with these dolls on their laps. Mm. And this happened in real life. Mamie really did host a party for dolls. And she required guests to speak only in baby talk and all, the whole time in all their conversations, which I think HBO definitely should have included that part. Yeah, I think so. She also held a circus ball, and the main attraction was a 12,000-pound elephant, and guests got to feed your mom peanuts. <laughs> hey! Hey-o! Hey! That, don't do that. Hey, I mean, uh, I liked it. I'm from the 1900s. I have, if I don't have a Yo Mama joke somewhere, you what, gotta... am I, what am I doing? You got to dish. Listen, we dish the gulls and we also dish some burns. One of her most famous parties was one that she threw from Mrs. Lair's pet Pomeranian, Mighty Adam. And that's A-T-O-M. Man, that's such a good name. That's a dope name. Mamie's own dog arrived in a $15,000 diamond collar. I mean, come on, upstaging the guest of honor. Yeah, I think that's a little bit rude. But, you know, Lair is her, he's her sidekick. So he's he's prepared. Oh yeah, he knows what he's getting into for this kind of stuff. Now, fifteen thousand diamond collar. What do you think that is in today's money? Um, <clears throat> have a guess. Take a, a stab. A hundred thousand dollars. Very close. It was three hundred thousand dollars. That's not close. You always say it's close. It's <laughs> I not mean, close. I think it is. Tables were set for both humans and dogs, and the dogs were served a three-course meal of stewed liver and rice. Biscuits and even cake. That sounds like a that sounds like a good meal for me. <laughs> but this is like the worst part. Afterwards, cats were brought in for the dogs to chase. No, cruel. <laughs> I was one hundred percent down with the dog party until this happened. 
What if they just like they didn't chase and they just became friends? We're going to pretend that that's what actually happened. Okay. And Mighty Adam went home with like 25 to like 50K worth of presents. I wonder what 25000 to $50,000 worth of dog presents is. Like, what are you getting? Is it jewelry? I don't know, but I'm definitely hosting a party for my dog and I'm going to keep the money for myself. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, dogs are getting all the money. Yeah. Details of her parties tended to end up in the papers, though she would sometimes play coy and be like, she would deny their existence. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never thrown a party for dogs or dogs. Me? Then the two cooked up their next scheme. Maybe and Harry decided to throw a party at Harry's house. And they had invitations drawn up announcing the arrival of a new aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Then they went to work stirring and churning that rumor mill. We're going, there's, there's something, this is party coming, and there's going to be someone there, and you must be there. I love how everyone's British. And... Well, they are <laughs> sort of. It's a it's it's a little bit of an accentuated transatlantic accent. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, keep it up. They would leave little nuggets of information here and there, saying that he was a prince no one in their circle had met before. His name was Prince Del Drago or Del Drago. It's, I like Del Drago. Yeah, it's Del Drago. We're going with Del Drago. And he was coming for his first visit to the US. And this left her friends clamoring to meet him. And she teased just here and there with things like, he's so nice. And they would be, she would be like, oh, but you can't give him too much to drink because he gets like super wild. <laughs> <laughs> Which only added to the mystique. And the friends just it enticed, it enticed her friends even more. Let's get this dude f***ing drunk. <laughs> so when the night of the party finally arrived, her guests were buzzing with excitement to meet this new, perhaps a wild prince. And as the butler announced the arrival of Harry Lair and Prince Del Drago, in walks Harry. And on his arm was a chimpanzee. <laughs> and the chimpanzee was smartly dressed in a white tie and tails. They got, they got everyone. They, they did. got them. That was great. And he was, uh, he was treated as the guest of honor that evening. And he got to sit right beside Mrs. Lair. She was technically the hostess. It was her house, so... So, of Mamie's parties, which one are you going to? Uh, Del Drago is top of mind right now. Um, oh, no, no, no. It's got to be the dog party. Yeah, going to the dog party. I'm going to unite the dogs and the cats in harmony, sit yeah. on the floor, puppy kitty party. I want to actually have a dog party now in real life. That one sounds like it was actually fun. Yeah, our dogs right now, as we speak, are waiting <laughs> right outside the door, just like staring at the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're so cute. All right. Now I'm going to tell you about switching gears, telling you about Susie Johnson and how she, quote, sparked America's obsession with erotic cake dancing. I never knew where my obsession with erotic cake dancing came from, but apparently it was from this. <laughs> we're all, we're all about We're it. all born with this obsession. And now we're going to find out why. It was May 20th. 1895, and polo player John Elliott Cowden was celebrating his 10th wedding anniversary with a lavish 16-course dinner. Two models charmed the male guests, and it was rumored that the brunette model served red wine, while the blonde model served white wine. 
Funnily enough, Keldon's own wife was not in attendance. Hmm. Hmm. And it was here that a 16-year-old Susie Johnson, quote, wearing nothing but gauze and haloed by a flock of live canaries, burst through the crust of a giant pie. Downer alert. Too young. Too young. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about it. And I'm going to say, like, you know, cake versus pie. I'm a pie girl. I don't want anyone in my pie. Yeah, I actually want to eat the pie. Jump out of a cake if you're going to jump out of any food. Now, 1890s New York was a magnet for girls who traveled from afar to make it big under the newly electrified lights of Broadway. Mother, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go be a star. I'm leaving, Mother. Though it was more common for them to end up modeling for print ads or working in a chorus line or in a factory or ending up at sex work. And that is where Susie Johnson found herself. After growing up in a working-class family on the West Side, she started a career as an artist model, posing innocently for portraits. Okay. But as these things go, tale as old as time, she soon started posing nude. And there, there's not anything necessarily wrong with that. No, absolutely not. The only thing is just she's so young. Yeah. You know, different time, but she just she's just a little kid. And this led her to that anniversary party, singing songs like Four and Twenty Blackbirds before a crowd featuring famous artists, New York Playboys, and even Nikola Tesla with her, quote, flesh gleaming in the smoky air. Should have listened to the song Four and Twenty Blackbirds before this, because I, I don't know what that song was like, but I imagine it's like, 24 blackbirds and four and 20 blackbirds. <laughs> I don't know. And who else was in attendance? But none other than that bastard Sandred White. Da da da! Get him out of there. And he was apparently the one who crafted Susie's evocative performance. Of course. Totally tracks. Yeah. Um. I think if, if you haven't listened to, if you're not familiar with Sandred right. White, right? Yes. Give a listen to our last episode. Episode three, where you find out about Stanford White and maybe why we're saying things we're saying about him right now. He's a slimy, slimy man. He's a garbo human. Now, as odd as it was in 1895 New York, people, and animals for that matter, bursting through baked goods wasn't all that new. It was apparently a thing. Yeah, I mean, that's old hat. In medieval Europe, people would stuff pies with live frogs for the simple pleasure of watching them hop out. And in the 1400s, an Italian cookbook had a recipe that included instructions on how to fill a pie with live birds that would burst into flight once the pie was sliced. Oh no, Jerry, one of the birds didn't make it out. Oh no! Oh, you sliced in the wrong spot. You ruined the pie? Oh god! Is this red sauce? Okay. No. (laughs) And my, my personal favorite. In 1626, the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham gifted Charles I with a pie. And out of that pie shot a live Sir Geoffrey Hudson a famous little person who actually ended up serving in his court. This pie has everything. (laughs) Meat, fruit, savory centers, and a live Sir Jeffrey Hudson. Exactly. Now, back in New York. The pie girl was a huge sensation. The New York world had an illustration of Susie sitting provocatively in pastry and surrounded by besuited men with the caption, the girl in the pie and the $3,500 dinner in artist Brees's New York studio. My God. Yeah, the cost of the dinner was like as shocking as the illustration. 
and the party itself, the price of the dinner was more than 2,300 times the daily wage of a laborer. See, I, I you know, I take issue with the perspective that, <laughs> that these kind of parties were necessary to employ people. I don't think that's true. And in that illustration in the New York world, Stanford White can be seen standing next to Susie on her left side, large knife in hand as if to carve her. Uh, Creepy alert. Yeah, he's, God, he's gross. It was reported that after the party, Susie modeled, quote, by electric light at an artist's studio, which at the time was a euphemism for his sex work. And um, sadly, she went missing soon after. <sighs> the New York World reported, poor Susie Johnson, dazzled by the lavish compliments and surprised by the liberality of her distinguished patrons. Perhaps this article will bring Susie Johnson home to her parents and put a stop to the midnight revels in New York's fashionable studios. And she was never seen again. Yeah, I mean, I like I like the people jumping out of food stuff. It's just kind of a bummer that so many people were... The dark underbelly of it all. Right. People were disposable at that time, and not that that doesn't happen now, but this is just a, a particularly um, stark example of that. Switching gears. Hey, Justin, have yeah. you ever seen a horse in an elevator? Um, no. How about dine on exquisite French cuisine with a 1,000-pound beast between your legs? I don't know how much rhinos weigh, but I did once eat escargot on top of a rhino. Oh, okay, okay. Well, diners attending a banquet in the posh Manhattan restaurant Sherry's experienced just that in 1903. This is Sherry's from before. Sherry's from before. Previous episode, guys. Yeah. The host was millionaire C.K.G. Billings, and he had something to celebrate. Cornelius Kingsley Garrison Billings was born in Saratoga, New York in 1861 and grew up in Chicago. He finished college at 17 and went to work for the People's Gas, Light, and Coke Company. And that was the company his dad was the president and principal investor of. I wonder if it's Coca-Cola that they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. But Billings started as a laborer and worked his way up the ranks to become president of the company in 1887. I'm sure his relationship to his father had nothing to do with that. Nothing. He married his wife, Blanche McLeish, in 1885, and they had two children. Billings was an industrialist tycoon, philanthropist, art collector, and a total horse boy. Horse boys represent. Dubbed, quote, the American Horse King by New York Times, he was a horse racing fanatic. And he owned 75 trotting horses and his babies needed a place in the city. Yeah, I like I like that he's a horse boy. I like that. So he built a $200,000 private stable next to the Harlem River Speedway. The 25,000 square foot stable had two stories and towers and cupolas, which are like small domes on top of structures. Oh, yeah. I live in a cupola. <laughs> it had private suites, a training ring, a gymnasium, steam heat, and electric lights. It was proper lush. Let's get these horses in here now. You know, we're going to get them in here and they're going to live better than 99% of people <laughs> on the regular people. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately for the time, that was probably true. So lush that Billings wanted to celebrate the opening of his trotting stables with a grand banquet. And rumors of the banquet sent the town a buzz. Newspapers started reporting that the dinner would be held at the stables and on horseback. They even went on to describe the decor for the party. 
So to everyone's surprise, Billings took uh, the more traditional route and booked a restaurant. So it's big one. That's like super boring. But this was a clever misdirection, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> On the night of the banquet, guests filed into the ballroom of the Fifth Avenue restaurant Sherry's. Horse boys never disappoint. That's true. The guests arrived in black and white evening wear, and the ballroom had been transformed. There was fake turf on the floor, lots of plants, and scenery of the English countryside was painted on the walls. They even had peasants working in mud um, <laughs> to really just sort of bring the correct atmosphere. Yeah, I don't know about that. And in place of tables and chairs stood horses, which had ridden up a freight elevator to the fourth floor restaurant. Okay. There were silver trays affixed to the saddles and bottles of champagne in saddlebags with, like, long tubes for the diners to use as straws. I like tubes. Tubes and parties. That's a good party. Guests climbed on up and enjoyed a meal horse top style. Waiters dressed in riding gear served both the guests and the horses. And while the horses were served oats, guests dined on caviar, turtle soup, purple fish, rack of lamb, guinea hen, and Flambe peaches. Okay, so I'm glad the horses had good oats. Caviar, maybe. Turtle soup, no, because turtles are good. Purple fish, I'm not sure what that is. Rack of lamb, I like lamb in specific circumstances. Guinea hen, it's probably just a chicken, but flambe peaches? Those peaches had it coming. Get those peaches and get them in your mouth. After dinner, guests dismounted and enjoyed a variety show, probably like the vaudeville show. See, we're talking about earlier. Come on, my baby. Come on, my honey. <laughs> Ragtime gal. As a nice little parting gift, guests got a sterling silver silver horseshoe inscribed with a menu. Like, how'd they fit that whole menu on that horseshoe? I'm like, That's no. crazy, though. I mean, I wonder how much that costs. That's A horseshoe is big. That's a lot of silver. So, inspiration for my birthday party. That's, you know, my birthday's coming up. So it's already like... booked. The horse top dining experience. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. What's this? A telegram? All the way from 1910? Summoned from the ether. How could it be? Berlin, November 19th. The scientific sensation of the hour in Germany is the talking dog, Don. A dark brown setter belonging to a royal gameskeeper named Ebers at Thierschutter near Hamburg. Don promises to become as celebrated an attraction as the horse Clever Hans, which startled the zoological savants of Europe eight years ago with his alleged mathematical feats. Carl Hagenbeck, the world-famed animal dealer, has offered Don's master $2,500 for the privilege of exhibiting the dog in the Hagenbeck outdoor menagerie at Hamburg. The dog's vocabulary, it is said, already embraces six words. His alleged elocutionary powers came to light early this week as a result of reports from the United States that Professor Alexander Graham Bell had succeeded in teaching a terrier to speak. It was declared that Germany not only possessed a dog with similar gifts, but a dog which had been talking for five years, and in fact, ever since he was six months old. The story was first considered a joke, but their shutter all the week has been the mecca of interested inquirers who have come away convinced that Don is a genuine canine wonder. His callers included a number of newspaper men who went to Thierschutter to interview the dog. The gamekeeper Ebers affirms the dog began talking in 1905, without training of any kind. According to his owner, the animal sauntered up one day to the table where the family were eating, and when his master asked, You want something, don't you? 
he stupefied the family by replying in a deep masculine tone, Haben! Haben! Want want! The tone was not a bark or growl, it is declared but distinct speech, and increased in plainness from day to day as his master took more interest in the dog's newly discovered talent. Shortly afterward, the story goes, the dog learned to say hunger, when asked what he had. Then he was taught to say Kuken, and Ya, and Nine. And it is added that he is now able to string several of these words together in sensible rotation, and will say, Hunger, I want cakes, when an appropriate question is addressed to him. The New York Times correspondent has caused inquiries regarding Don to be made through trustworthy authorities at Hamburg. He is assured that the dog is an unqualified scientific marvel. Don's owner is overwhelmed with applications from circus and music hall managers who are outbidding one another for the privilege of exhibiting the dog, Don. <laughs> and if you want to see picture a picture of Don, head on over to our Instagram where we'll be posting one. I wish I could meet Don and I wish I could hear him talk. You could like have a whole conversation with him. We got to figure out time travel. And that's the episode, folks. That's all, folks. Join us next time for another weird and wild tale. From the ether. Join us on Instagram at Gilded Goss Podcast for pics and illustrations of the crazy characters and parties we talked about today. And we love hearing from you. Please send any comments or corrections or ideas for upcoming episodes to GildedGoss at gmail.com. Get at us. Until next time, farewell, cabbages. It's time to face the corn. The corn. <laughs>